Well, we all have them, don't we? Those, those life-changing moments, those moments when you realize that after this experience, uh, it's not going to be the same anymore, that I've been changed. Um, maybe it's the first time you watched Star Wars as a kid. Um, you know, children, maybe it was the first day of school. Uh, students, maybe, maybe it was the day you got your driver's license or, or the day you got that letter that said you were accepted into the college of your choice, and you knew your life was never going to be the same. Uh, or maybe it was the first time that, uh, that you fell in love. I still remember so clearly exactly where I was standing on the plaza when Rachel, this, this tall, beautiful girl, walked across the street toward me as I was standing in front of Barnes & Noble, and I knew my life was never going to be the same. Or, or, or maybe you're a parent, and, and the first time you heard that baby's heartbeat, I know for, for me, I don't think I'm ever going to forget that sound. My life was changed in an instant. Or, or maybe it was at the Grand Canyon, or, or hearing a favorite piece of music played in a park under the moonlit sky, when you get a taste of this sort of transcendence. And these moments of transcendence, moments when you know you've encountered something bigger than yourself, even something, something grand, something beautiful, something almost too wonderful for words, even in that moment, you realize you are being changed. And the same is true when we encounter God. And you know what? The prophet Isaiah learned this in the passage that we just heard read. He learned that you cannot encounter God without being changed by him. Think about that for a moment. You cannot encounter God without being changed by him. You might think that you've encountered God, but you cannot leave an encounter without him unless you've been changed. And so ask yourself, have I really encountered him? Because you haven't really encountered him unless you've been changed in some way. And, and there's no neutral presence in the, in the presence of God. There's no neutral ground. And, and the reality is, is that every one of us in some way or another, to some extent, has encountered God. Regardless of, of your background or your beliefs, I mean, we counter, encounter him in the beauty of his creation, in this kind of internal sense of, of right and wrong that we can't seem to escape, in, in our ceaseless longings for something more out of this life. We encounter him in his word and in, through his people and in all kinds of ways. And, and to encounter him is to be changed by him. But, but not every change is positive. You see, again, there's no neutral ground in his presence. And so maybe you encounter him and you actually want less of him. Maybe you want more of him. Maybe you encounter him and, and you acknowledge him. But maybe you encounter him and, and you choose to ignore him. But either way, you've been changed. Either you're becoming a little bit more like him, a little bit more like the creature that he designed you to be, or a little bit less. So you've not encountered God unless you've been changed by him. So this morning, as we look at this passage in Isaiah, we need to ask three questions. First, who is God? Not, not who do we imagine him to be, not who would we want him to be, but who is God really? Who does God's word, what does his word reveal about him? Who is God? So first, who is God? Second, how do you know that you've encountered him? And third, what, what's the alternative? So, so who is God? How do you know that you've encountered him? And what's the alternative? So first, who is God? When we look at his word, who does it reveal him to be? And we, and we see a glimpse of this in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And I do invite you to turn there with me. It's on page 571 in the Pew Bibles. And Isaiah writes, in Isaiah 6, 1, he says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, 
And I want to pause right here for a moment because I think before we go any further than this, even that's one phrase, we need to kind of stop and ask, where are we at in the story? Because as we've been reading along in open here, uh, as we've been in the poetic books, we've kind of gotten disconnected, I think, a little bit from the timeline of God's people. So if you've been reading along with open here, you've been reading Isaiah for the last few days, but where does Isaiah fit in the story? So we spent a little bit of time looking at the poetics, but those aren't necessarily attached really precisely to the timeline. So remember, God God's people begin, this is my little hand sketch, do you like this? God's people begin with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then as we move along, God's people get sent into Egypt to be saved from a famine, and Joseph is the one who preserves their life there. But after Joseph dies, the people are enslaved by the Egyptians, and then Moses is raised up by God to send the people out. And then Moses leads the people to the edge of the promised land, and after a long period of time, God's people are finally established in the land. And you get the kings of Saul and David and Solomon. But then there begins to be a decline. The kingdom splits. And now the kingdom of Israel is now two parts. There's Judah in the, in the south and, and Israel in the north. It's a divided kingdom. And it's in this time that the prophets are. So you are here. We're in the part, period of the prophets. But the Bible actually organizes the books in, in groups of the type of literature they are, not necessarily chronologically. So you have the law together, history together, which is why we've actually already studied Nehemiah as part of the history books, even though chronologically... It comes after the prophet. So I just wanted to kind of orient us. This is where we're at in the story. We're in the midst of the divided kingdom where the, these sets of evil kings are basically ruling over Israel. God's people are turning away from him as never before. And it's into this environment that God sends his prophets to confront the people with their rebellion and call them to repentance. You see, this is where Isaiah lands. And this is where his life-changing encounter with God occurs, in the year that King Uzziah dies. And King Uzziah was a king over the southern part of the nation. And he had ruled over the south for a long time, and it was a time of great power and prosperity for the nation. But Uzziah's life and death are now becoming kind of a, a microcosm, a foreshadowing of what is happening to the entire nation. As Uzziah had turned away from God and eventually died, so the nation is turning away from God and facing judgment. The nation is being thrust into a time of great instability. The other nations are beginning to crowd around them to threaten their national security. And Isaiah's role is to confront the people. This is the role of the prophets. They have this confrontational role. They go to tell people things that they don't want to hear, to call them back to God. But what we see is that first... The prophet who is called by God to confront is confronted by God himself. And actually, if you read Isaiah chapters 1 through 5, what you see a lot of is Isaiah looking at them. He's saying, this is their problems. But what you realize here in Isaiah 6, Isaiah realizes that he is actually part of the problem himself. As he encounters God, he realizes that he is complicit in this as well. So what is it that Isaiah is confronted with in Isaiah chapter 6 that makes this happen? He's confronted with who God is. So let's keep reading. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings, two which they covered their face and concealed their feet, and with two they flew And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So when we ask the question, who is God? This passage presents one of the best summaries in the entire Bible. When we ask, who is God? What is he like? The answer comes back loud and clear from Isaiah 6 that God is holy. And Isaiah actually uses the phrase, the Holy One of Israel, to describe God over 25 times in the book. And A.W. Tozer, a leading American uh, Christian writer and pastor in the first half of the 20th century, he said that the most important thing about us is what comes into our mind when we think about God. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So when you think about holiness, or rather when you think about God, does holiness come into your mind? Holiness is all that these angelic creatures, the seraphim, literally the burning ones, can can think of him. They, They call out over and over and over again with this threefold refrain, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts means the Lord of the armies, or the Lord of the heavens. Host is a picture of this, of this army of angels. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And this, this repetition of holy, holy, holy over and over again, it's a way of showing intensification, right? Because in, in Hebrew, you, didn't have, you couldn't underline something or, or bold something. They didn't have like a word processor. You couldn't say, oh, I want to really highlight this, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it in bold or italics or, or underline. So you would repeat it, right? So all throughout the Old Testament in Hebrew, people will, will double something to, to emphasize. So if you had gold, gold, you might translate it pure gold it's the, or, the, or the finest gold. But this is the only place in the Bible where you get a, a tripling, where you have three, holy, holy, holy together. It's the only place in the Old Testament where you get this. It's, it's a super superlative. The British scholar uh, J. Alec Mateer writes, he says, holiness is the supreme truth about God. And his holiness is in itself so far beyond human thought that a super superlative had to be invented to express it. It's like in English when you, when you encounter something that's so big, so huge, so enormous... Uh, that, that neither giant or enormous can, can quite capture it. So we smash those two words together and say, well, it was ginormous. That's the same kind of thing that's happening here. It, they're making up, they're adding on to, to capture something that's really beyond language. And actually, ginormous is in the Webster's Dictionary. I looked that up this week. It entered about 1945. I thought that was going to go into my spell check as something that was not a real word. It is uh, in the dictionary, just by, by the way. Um, fun fact. So perhaps that three times repetition here too, also of holy, 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 also maybe hints a bit too at who God is as Trinity, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't get that full picture until later on in the story after Jesus, but we get a tiny hint of it here. So what is holiness? If, as, as uh, Matir said, that holiness is supremely the truth about God, what does it mean that he is holy? What is holiness? I, I don't know about you, but I mean, I feel like holiness is kind of an old stuffy church word. I mean, you feel like, oh, I'm in this, this holy place, or, or, or maybe you think of, of his holiness, the Dalai Lama. I, it's, it just seems like a really kind of religious word, but I don't know if it really means a lot. I think the only time we really use the word holy in, in kind of regular speech today is it's usually followed by the word cow, or depending on the situation, something maybe a little more colorful than that, um, if it's the situation's a little more intense. But what does the word holy mean? And I, I found a theologian, R.C. Sproul, he's got a great explanation of this. He says, the first prayer I learned as a child was a simple table prayer. God is great, 
God is good, and we thank him for this food. Amen. But then Sproul goes on to say, the two virtues assigned to this prayer, assigned to God in this prayer, greatness and goodness, may be captured by one biblical word, holy. The two virtues assigned to God in this prayer, his greatness and his goodness, may be captured by one biblical word, holy. You see, first, holiness describes God's greatness, his uniqueness, his, his separateness as the one and only creator of God. That there, there's no one else like him. God's holiness first speaks about the fact that he is radically different from, from you and me, that he is immense, that he is beyond us, that he's created everything, that there's an otherness to him, that even when we get just a tiny glimpse of who he is, that it causes us to react with a trembling awe I love the passage in in Kenneth Graham's classic, The Wind in the Willows. If you've ever read this children's book, it's a great story. And there's one little side story in the book where where the two characters, Mole and Rat, they're paddling a little boat down a stream, and they're headed to the island where Pan, the god of of the animal kingdom, where he lives. And as they paddle closer and closer to the island, Mole asks Rat a question. Rat, he found breath to whisper shaking, are you afraid? Afraid, murmured Rat, his eyes shiny with unutterable love. Afraid of him? Oh no, never, never. And yet, oh yet, oh mole, I am afraid. You see, God is good, but he is not safe. He is rightly worshipped as the maker and creator of all things. He stands above all. Actually, you notice in the text that it says the seraphim are above God. In, earlier in the text, but, the, but we shouldn't get the idea that, he, that the seraphim are sort of above God in any kind of hierarchical sense, but rather the picture is of God seated on a throne and his servants standing to wait on him. So he is seated, his, thro- his servants are standing ready to wait on him. Nothing is above him. So holiness speaks of God's greatness, but holiness also speaks of his goodness, his, his moral purity, his absolute goodness. God is totally just and righteous in all that he does. He is always fair with all of his creatures. He seeks justice and will one day judge everyone according to the standard of his moral purity. And I think we have a, t- a, a sort of a visceral dislike, at least I know I do, of this idea that, that A, if God at least even has a standard in the first place, and much less that, that he would judge me by that standard. But I'm helped when I listen to, again, A.W. Tozer write. He explains that the holiness of God, the wrath of God, and the health of God's creation are inseparably united. The holiness of God the wrath of God and the health of creation are inseparably united. He says God's wrath is his utter intolerance of whatever degrades and destroys. He hates iniquity as, his mother, as a mother hates the polio that takes the life of her child. You see, God hates sin in the way that a mother hates the polio that takes the life of her child. His holiness is contrary to anything that would degrade or destroy his creation. God's holiness is his hidden glory, but it, as the seraphim proclaim, the whole earth is full of his glory. God's glory is his all-present, everywhere-present holiness. 
And, and it's not a coincidence that, that Isaiah would have this encounter with the holy God in the temple because the temple at that time was the place where heaven and earth were seen to meet. It was this place. You get that kind of picture of Michelangelo with the, the, the fingers touching. The temple was the place where that was seen to be happening, the place where God met with man. And it's in that place where God's presence in all of his majesty is at the center of his people's lives. And so as, as we think about that, God's presence coming down in all of its holiness into their lives, there's two questions we've got to ask. First, is, is this your experience of God? Is this our experience of God? Do we respond to him as the one and only ruler? Or is he really just sort of the one who kind of affirms what, what, what we want to do, who rubber stamps our plan? You see, God in all of his holiness is not the affirmer of us and our agenda. No, we conform to him and his design, not the other way around. So second, where do we encounter this God? I mean, you've probably not had an experience like Isaiah. I mean, at least I haven't had. I haven't been sitting here in my office one day and all of a sudden the curtain of heaven is kind of ripped back and, and I see God in all of his holiness. But, but where do we encounter God? It probably happens in more subtle ways in our lives. Maybe we encounter him through his word, through reading the Bible, or here at church in community with other believers, or maybe through the spiritual disciplines of, of reading the Bible, of studying, of prayer, of fasting, of serving one another, of selflessly giving of our time and, and our talent and our treasure. In moments of, of beauty, when you, when you see a great work of art, or you see, hear a great piece of music, in, in love, in relationships, we get glimpses of him. Are you on the lookout for where you're encountering him? So we've looked at our first big question, who is God, in verses 1 through 4, but now as we look at verses 5 through 8, we ask the second big question, how do we know that we've encountered this God? What is it like when we actually encounter God in all of his holiness? We see kind of four signs, at least in this text, as Isaiah encounters him. First, there's desperation, repentance, atonement, and devotion. You see, notice how Isaiah responds to the revelation of the Holy One of Israel in verse 5. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. So you can imagine Isaiah, he walks into the temple one morning, he's praying, minding his own business, when all of a sudden the curtain of heaven is peeled back, and Isaiah thinks he sees God in all of his holiness, and he thinks, this is it, I'm done for I, I think if I was Isaiah, I'm just waiting for that, that final scene of the Raiders of the Lost Ark when the Nazis take off the lid. I mean, that's what he's waiting for. I'm just going to be completely melted away and destroyed in this moment. Um, actually, the, that phrase, the Hebrew phrase, woe is me, it, it's actually the same, um, if he, the Yiddish phrase, oy vey. Even you hear someone say, oy vey, that's the same, uh, the same language being brought into to Yiddish there. And, and his paraphrase, Eugene Peterson, captures Isaiah's feeling this way. He says, I'm, I'm as good as dead. I'm as good as dead. And every one of us, whether we realize it or not, or whether we're willing to not acknowledge it, we, every one of us, is desperate in the presence of God. You see, when we get even a, a tiny glimpse of who God really is and all of his holiness and glory and goodness, we realize that we not only don't live up to God's standards, we don't even live up to, to our own standards. I mean, let's just set aside God and all of his moral purity just for one moment. I don't even live up to, to my own standards of what I expect from people, right? So, so I expect people to tell me the truth. I, I feel like people owe me the truth. When I ask a question, they should tell me the truth. 
And yet, do I lie to others? Do I bend the truth? I, I expect that people should not cut me off on the highway. And yet, you know, when, when I've got to do it, I'll cut someone off if I'm about to miss my exit. We, you see, we, we all do this. We don't even live it. We, we have our standard. I mean, like I said, just setting aside God's standard. But we even have our standard. But we don't even live up to our own standard of what we expect other people to do. Much, much less what God has called us to be. So if, if we can't even live up to our own standard. Every one of us should be crying out with Isaiah, it's, it's over for me. I, I'm, I'm done. But if you keep reading in verse 5, look at, look at what Isaiah says next. Isaiah's desperation, it spills over into repentance. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I re- Isaiah recognizes that, that both that he is an individual and, and the nation collectively, that they have abandoned God. If, if you go back to the beginning of Isaiah in, in chapter 1, verse 4, Isaiah writes, Ah, a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. Iniquity is just another word for, for sin or wrongdoing. Offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. And, and listen carefully to this. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. And they are utterly estranged. They have despised God and it's led to this estrangement from God. To despise the Holy One is to scorn in practical ways all that God is. You you see, sin is opposed to holiness because at the root, sin is a posture toward God that rejects Him as King, that ignores Him, that dismisses Him. And, And you may not think that you despise God. You're like, I'm not despising God. But the, the thing is, is that despising God can as easily take the form of a, of a turned back in the deaf ear as it can sort of a, of a shaking of the fist and a shout of anger. So Isaiah, having now clearly seen who God is, acknowledges his own sin. He sees himself as God sees him. And this is actually the heart of repentance. This is the, the, when repentance happens, this is always involved, that we begin to say about our sin what God says about our sin. We begin to tell the truth about it. And, and, and real repentance doesn't happen into that moment until we begin to tell ourselves the truth about our own sinfulness. So, so are we really willing to do this? Are we willing to call sin what it is? Or do we just try to wriggle out of it? <laughs> do we call lies bending the truth? We call anger standing up for my rights. We call pride a healthy confidence. We call selfishness independence. Are we willing to call sin, sin, and recognize the desperate place we are before a holy God? If we are, we will discover what Isaiah discovers in verse 6. Take a look. It says, then the, whole, then the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Now, in this moment, again, imagine Isaiah. He's in the temple. The heavens have just been kind of peeled back. He sees this. He says, I'm undone. And then the next thing he sees, we can know, maybe if you've read the text, we've heard it read. Isaiah doesn't know what happens next here. But the thing he sees is, a, is this angel, this flaming, burning angel, take a coal out of the altar and start flying at his face. Again, again, at this moment, I think Isaiah's thinking, here it is. 
I'm dead. This is done for. This thing is going to burn me up. I'm going to be destroyed. But if you keep reading in verse 7, he says, and he touched my mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Wait, so what is going on here? What, what does it mean first that his sin was atoned for? And then how in the world does, does a burning coal touching his lip accomplish that? Well, remember again, where is Isaiah at during this encounter? He's in the temple. And the temple was the place where God met with his people. It was the place where sacrifices for sins were offered on a daily basis. And, and you see the basic principle. We looked at this a while back in Leviticus, if you remember, when we were going through that. The basic principle underlying all sacrifices was an atonement, a, a making right by the substitution of an innocent life for a guilty life. And, and the word translated atoned for there, it means a smearing or, or a covering over. The sacrifice wiped away, it cleansed the person of their sin. So, so as one commentator put it, for Isaiah, the live coal symbolizes the total significance of the altar from which it came. That the penalty of sin was paid by a substitute in the sinner's place. So as that coal touches Isaiah's lips, it's the symbol of all that the altar, all that the temple stood for coming to him and being applied to him in that moment. See, the sacrifice initiated by God and applied by God is what removes Isaiah's guilt and allows him to stand in the presence of God. Notice here that that forgiveness and atonement is something that God does for us. Isaiah doesn't stand in God's presence in this moment and, and say, God, what can I do to make myself right here? He's undone and God provides for him in that moment. He revealed himself, he confronted Isaiah with his guilt, and he has brought his forgiveness and cleansing to Isaiah. God always takes the first step in his relationship with his people to bring about forgiveness. He removes them out of Israel. He does all of this. He comes to us. He's always moving towards us. So the question then for us is, is where are you depending on for your moral standing? Are you relying on yourself or are you relying on the one who has done this for you, who has taken the initiative? Are you trusting him? Because going through the motions isn't enough. I mean, when Isaiah goes to this people at church in Israel, these are church people, right? These are people who are going through the motions of worship on a regular basis. Even though they've turned their hearts from God, they were still showing up at church all the time. If you read in Isaiah chapter 29, Listen to what it says. Isaiah writes, This people draw near to me with their mouths, this is God speaking, and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. They were going through the motions. They were saying all the right things. They were doing all the right things, but their hearts were far from God. We can't rely on our own abilities, our own kind of ability to come to church and do the right things and say the right things. Only God's provision can save us, can rescue us. If you've met him, you know that you couldn't possibly stand on your own. So cling to the one who can rescue you. Now in verse 8, with sort of steam still rising from his charred lips, we See Isaiah go from woe is me to here am I. From devastation to devotion. Look at verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and and who will go for us? And, And then I said, Here am I, send me. 
And again, notice the plurality of the language. Who will go for us? Once again, we get kind of hints about God as Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, Holy Spirit. And we see this conversation. God is asking, who will go to this people and tell them the truth about who I am and, and the truth about themselves? And Isaiah, having now been forgiven and his sins having been atoned for, he raises his hand and says, here am I, send me, I will go. You see, God's revelation of, of, his, of who he is, of his mercy and his grace, they've brought Isaiah in. And now those very things prepare to send him out. You see, God always brings his people in to heal them and to preserve them and, and to renew them, but also he never brings them in without also sending them out. And often this, this passage has been used as a text to call people to kind of missionary service to a far-off land, you know, that, that you would now pack up and, and you go somewhere to, to Africa or, or Far East Asia. And it's important to remember as we read this passage that, that it's describing a describing text. It's, it's not a prescribing text. In other words, it's a text that's telling us what happened to a person, Isaiah, in history, rather than speaking to us about what we should be doing specifically today. However, it's important not to miss a vital truth here for all of us this morning. And, and first is that every single one of us is called. Every single one of you is called. First and foremost, you are called to God himself. He is calling you into relationship with himself. He longs to know you. He is calling you to be forgiven, to repentance, to know him. But secondarily, each of us is called to a particular vocation, a place of contribution in God's good world. Whether as a, as a stay-at-home dad or mom, as an engineer, as a nurse, as a pastor, as a social worker, as a CEO or a CFO, each of us is called to a unique place of contribution in God's world through our work. So while this text isn't calling us to quit our jobs and, and all of us, I mean, maybe there's some of you, maybe that's what he's calling you to, but for the vast majority of us, this text isn't about quitting our jobs and becoming missionaries in a far-off land, far from it. But it does call us to realize that our work, both our paid and our unpaid work, will be radically affected when we get a glimpse of who God is in all of his holiness. It isn't necessarily calling us to pack up and go to another country but it is calling us to realize that our work, wherever that work is, will be radically affected when we get a glimpse of God's holiness. There's a great scene in the book, of, uh, in, in the, book the Horse and His Boy by C.S. Lewis, part of the Chronicles of Narnia series. I think it just captures this picture of devotion so well when we encounter God. And the, the scene is of a horse. This is, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia, they all have talking animals. I like that. I don't know if you're okay with that, but the animals talk, right? And so when this, this horse, she encounters Aslan, the lion, for the first time. And, and Aslan is the Christ of Narnia. And she sees Aslan for the first time. Listen to how Lewis describes it. Then when shaking all over, gave a strange little neigh and trotted across to the lion. Please, she said, you are so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I'd sooner be eaten by you and fed by anyone else. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. How do you know that you've encountered God? When you see him for who he is and you say, I would rather die than be satisfied by anything else. I would rather just, just have it all be over than let my heart's longing be satisfied by anything else but you. 
That kind of devotion is essential to being a disciple, which is what Jesus' followers are. We are are devoted disciples. We're, We're not demanding customers. You see, Jesus didn't call customers, right? He calls disciples. He calls apprentices, learners. He sets the agenda for us, not the other way around. And this is really important to keep in mind as we turn to the final point. What's the alternative? You see, we've all encountered God in in some way or another. We've all been changed by God in, in one way or another. And we see with Isaiah an example of, the, of a positive change, but not every change is positive. Remember, we hinted at that at the beginning. But, but what's the alternative? You see, usually we stop reading Isaiah chapter 6 at verse 8. I mean, we don't usually keep on reading to the end of the chapter, but, but I want to read the last few verses of the chapter for you this morning. So after Isaiah says, here I am, I will go, this is what God says. He said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and their eyes blind, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then Isaiah says, Then how long, O Lord? And God replies, Until the cities lay waste without inhabitants, houses without people, the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Although a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. You see, if you've encountered God, there are just two options. The path of Isaiah or the path of Israel. The path of of hearing but refusing to understand. Of getting glimpses of God but refusing to see. God is always moving toward us But there comes a time when if we continue to refuse to to come to him, to to acknowledge him, when he lets us go. That's what happened to the people of Israel. See, there's no neutral ground in the presence of God. You either say, woe is me, or you say, stay away from me. You either say, here I am, God, or, or to hell with you, God. There's no neutral ground. The people had encountered God. The nation of Israel had encountered God over and over and over again. And yet they refused to understand. They saw, but they refused to perceive. And so Isaiah's mission, his lifetime mission, is to preach to a people who won't hear. They're already too far gone. He preaches a message of judgment to the nation. But this message of judgment also comes with a hint of hope. Did you catch it in verse 13? There's a tiny hint of hope. I, it's this language, the holy seed is in its stump. Again, I love how Jayalak Matira puts this. He says, typical of Isaiah, hope is the unexpected fringe attached to the garment of doom. I love that language. Hope is the unexpected fringe in Isaiah attached to the garment of doom. Keep an eye out for that as you read Isaiah. There's a lot of judgment, but there's some massive glimpses of hope. So he says the comparison with the felled trees starts by describing the meager remains in verse 13a. But suddenly it is found not to be the conclusion of an earlier sentence, but the start of a new stump, with, or start of a new thought. Within the stump there is life. Within the stump, in the burned stump of the nation, there's life. You see, the holy seed, the life in the chopped down stump is Christ. 
And one day, 800 years after Isaiah wrote these words, another person would answer the call, who shall go for us? And this time, it would be God himself in the person of Jesus, taking on flesh, becoming a human being, and coming to his people. The apostle John writes of Jesus in John chapter 1, and the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, John writes, but the only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus has revealed God to us. In Jesus we have seen him. We have encountered him. We have encountered the ones whose lips were not merely charged, but whose entire body was whipped and broken that our sins might be forgiven. And the question is, what are we going to do with him? You see, this morning as we come to the communion table and taste and touch the good news of the gospel, each one of us is faced with the question. Each one of us is faced with both the holiness of God and our own sinfulness. You see, there is no pride in the communion line. When you stand in that line waiting to receive communion, you are saying, woe is me for I am a person of unclean lips. But we are also saying, glory to God in the highest who has forgiven my sin and made atonement for me. We celebrate communion here, and you don't have to be a member of Christ's communion to celebrate. If you are in the place where you recognize, I am lost and broken without Christ, and yet I trust him completely to provide for me, you are welcome at the table. Come and taste and touch and see the goodness of the gospel. When you come, just exit through these side aisles. There's communion stations in the front and in the back, too. Each and the one in this corner here has gluten-free communion elements available if you need that. And when you go to receive uh, communion, I know that the, if you're new with us, the, the aisles of these pews are kind of narrow, so you may have to step over someone who's remaining seated or, or as you're getting back in. We're used to that, so it's okay if you bump into someone a little bit. Um, we're, we're a family. We understand that. So take your time this morning. Don't feel rushed, but come and taste and touch the good news that Jesus has made you whole, that you might stand in the presence of the holy God. Come now and celebrate communion.